Hello there. Thank you for tapping your way over to this podcast. This episode in particular is on the status quo. I've brought this concept up in previous episodes, but in a very real and unfortunately violent way is the highlight of this episode. I'm going to give you a quick definition to level set. The status quo is the current state of things. As you can see, it needs to be applied to something. And in this episode's case, the state of politics and political pressure. In other words, what are the current accepted practices, norms, customs in place, and whoever benefits from that order is very much part of the status quo. Because those benefactors will end up doing whatever they can to maintain the current conditions of things, whether they're social, political, or within another system like business, pretty much everything from mean girls clicks to titans of industries will do ruthless things to maintain their order. I've read about some of those in history, sometimes quite scandalous and shocking, of what members of these status quo would do in order to keep control. What often gets forgotten when reading history, though, is to consider that we're anything different than back then in those historical times. That what pushes our buttons or drives our motives aren't still there. It ends up typically being all well and good until we find that we're members of a challenged group. Now, for the sake of this episode, what if the challenged state of the political and social divisions within a major U.S. city were challenged? What would the status quo do if they were seeing a very real threat? Would a more ancient function emerge? Or have we become more refined in the few years since the Industrial Revolution? As near to us as 1969, which is a rapid blink of the eye, there was a program directed by some of the highest levels of the U.S. government to assassinate perceived threats of the status quo. Their previous social fabric worried about and wanted to, quote, prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the black nationalist movement. Then, well, on December 4th, 1969, a 21-year-old man was assassinated by the status quo for, among other things, unifying a movement that was starting to organize between white folks from Appalachia, Puerto Ricans, and the black community led by the Black Panthers. He was killed in order to hopefully prevent the rise of a messiah. There's a common trope in history, so common that we don't even realize it's not actually fact. It's the so-called great man of history. Can one great outlying person set the whole series of moments in time after them different than they otherwise would have been? Counterfactual thoughts and historical what-ifs are fun to play around with. If one man, in the case of who I'm talking about today, Fred Hampton, wasn't murdered, how different would our time today have been? One can come up with many points on how things could have turned out. But the program that you'll hear about during this interview begs the question of scale. How many more influential leaders were targeted? And when that force is taken in aggregate, what kind of impact did that have? That's the factual history. This program, COINTELPRO, existed. And this interview serves as a great abridged version of the definitive book on the subject, The Assassination of Fred Hampton, How the FBI and the Chicago Police Murdered a Black Panther.
I suggest you pick it up. If you find this interview interesting and want to learn more about the civil rights movement, or even if you just want to learn more about the culture of the 60s from somebody who was on the ground. My interview is with the author, Jeffrey Haas, an attorney and activist who for decades, along with his colleagues, uncovered the FBI's involvement in COINTELPRO, an abbreviation for counterintelligence program conducted by the FBI to initially surveil and then later assassinate perceived threats. Thank you very much to Jeff for writing this story down for the world to remember and learn from. In history, getting first-hand accounts is one of the only ways we can remember our past and what it is like living through that present reality. Thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoy. Real quick before the episode begins, if you like what you hear, please tap that follow or subscribe button. You also can find this episode, all episodes in the series, or check out our daily minute podcast by visiting us at bandwidth.productions. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. I'm very excited to talk with you. Um, would you please introduce yourself? Uh, yes. My name is Jeffrey Haas. I'm a lawyer and uh, I was a lawyer for the family of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. Uh, I've been a civil rights lawyer for 55 years and I was one of the founders of the People's Law Office in Chicago. Cool. And we're going to get into a lot of that. Um, I first at the first time I have a guest, I ask them the same question. So I'm gonna ask it to you. It's a little bit outside of the realm of what we're talking about. But um, what do you like to do that makes you happy? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, I like to play tennis. And I like the satisfaction of seeing justice done on work that I do or other people do. I can, just, I can see that. Um, so we were just saying, I'm uh, a little shy of 45 minutes of the audiobook uh, left of your book, um, um, which is the assassination of Fred Hampton, um, which is how I came across you. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, so I could see uh, the passion that you have for getting justice served uh, definitely comes through in that book. Um, so I could see that being a, a source of pleasure for you. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're active with tennis, too. I always try to stay active myself. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, not quite like I used to be, you know. I have fun. I play with my son, and he's really good. And the only rules are he has to hit the ball to me, and I can hit it anywhere. And otherwise, <laughs> it's a great, great match. <laughs> I like those rules. I'm going to save those uh, for one day. Um, uh, so uh, I, I, I want to... I'm going to jump around a little bit because I, I, what sure. I really what I really would like to know is is for the audience to understand um, a couple of things. So one is what was like the feeling of the street during the time period of Fred Hampton's have Fred Hampton's uh, murder? Like, what was it like around that area, who he was and, and kind of like, you know, kind of moving in concentric circles around there. So if I jump around a little bit, that's that's why I want to try to get that uh, get that down. So because his name is going to come up a lot, 
I was wondering if you could help help the audience understand who Fred Hampton is, um, especially because, um, you know, like in the leftist circles, like there's a, a group, I'm not sure if they still call themselves that, but they call themselves the Fred Hampton leftists. Um, so I've been seeing his name in popular culture more and more often, but if you're not one of those uh, leftist political junkies, you might not know. Um, so if you help the audience understand first who he was, and then I want to move around from there. Sure. Well, that's a good opening question, and let me try to set the stage a little bit. Uh, and we'll start with 1968-1969 in Chicago. Uh, I had graduated from the University of Chicago Law School uh, the year before in 1967, uh, when Dr. King was killed, uh, was murdered, assassinated. Uh, there were demonstrate riots and rebellions in Chicago. And I went down to the police station that night to represent some of the young people that were just getting picked up on the street and charged, even though they hadn't done anything. And there I met Dennis Cunningham, another lawyer, and that's what we chose to do on that night in April uh, of 1967. I'm sorry, 1968, when, when Dr. King was killed. Um, and so... Uh, I guess I had already had some uh, learned uh, a great sympathy and support of the civil rights movement, uh, but Dennis uh, was a little a bit ahead of me, and Dennis had met this young, uh, very charismatic man named Fred Hampton, uh, who grew up in Maywood, a suburb of Chicago, um, and Fred came from a family that had migrated to the suburbs of Chicago, working class suburbs from Haynesville, uh, Louisiana. And his mother and father had actually uh, grown up on farms where their grandparents had been slaves. And they moved to Chicago during the Great Migration uh, and moved to Maywood, one of the western suburbs of Chicago at that time that had a number of, of factory jobs. And Fred, Fred grew up there uh, uh, and there were many, his mother was a, a union steward. She was a really strong uh, woman. And his father was uh, also a man of, 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 of few words, but really strong will. Uh, and I like, he, he actually tended a garden on a plot in Chicago that reminded him of the farm in Louisiana where they, they'd grown up. Uh, I got to know his parents much better uh, later in life and even after he was killed. So Fred grew up. Uh, and there were, uh, he was a smart kid, he was a, a, a social kid, he was a popular kid. Uh, he actually had a speech defect early on, and he actually learned to practice uh, uh, overcoming that, uh, to become the great orator who was, so that eventually people said, well, you don't take on, on Fred's mouth. But he had had to overcome that. Um, but some of the unusual things he did as an eight or 10 year old kid in Maywood, on Saturdays, he would gather some of the kids from the neighborhood who didn't have enough food, invite him over to his house and cook breakfast for these kids. And I used to say Fred started his own breakfast for children program uh, in, in Maywood uh, 10 years before the Panthers did. Uh, another thing Fred did, as I said, uh, he just, uh, he, he would go to church and he would learn the cadence of the, of the preachers that his parents would, would hear at the church. And he eventually memorized the speeches of Dr. King and Malcolm X. And when Fred got to high school, 
You know, his father said there was just one thing Fred couldn't accept injustice anywhere. So he was a popular kid. He was on the football team and the basketball team. But in his junior year at Maywood, uh, they had had a homecoming and they didn't allow home, black girls to be contestants for to run for homecoming queen. So Fred led a walkout around that uh, and actually changed the school's policy. And he led a similar walkout to get more black teachers and more black administrators. So even in high school, uh, Fred had this sense of justice, uh, of standing up for what was right, standing up for black people in particular. Um, and his ability to organize was picked up by the head of the suburban NAACP. And after he graduated from high school, he was made the head of the suburban NAACP in the whole Chicago area. Um, and uh, he was, he was, uh, had the ability to organize. It grew from like 30 people to 300 people in the six months or a year that was there, uh, that he was organizing there. And one of the things he decided to do was organize a, a rally in Maywood because there was no place in the summertime where black kids could go to swim. Uh, white kids could go to private pools in the nearby suburbs, but they didn't allow black kids. And uh, even though Fred at that point hardly knew how to swim, he would take kids to pools in Chicago and other places. But then he leads a march together with a prominent dentist to the Maywood City Council in 1968, demanding that they have a recreation center and a pool for black kids. And he leads about 200 kids down there. Um, and the, apparently the police get freaked out at seeing all these young black people and they tear gas them. And uh, so while Fred negotiating to get a bigger room, some of the kids run away and some windows are broken. So they end up charging Fred and this dentist who's gave speeches at the beginning of the march uh, with mob action. And that's where my friend Dennis, who I had just met coming in, Dennis contacted Fred. Uh, I mean, Fred contacted Dennis, excuse me. Uh, and Dennis had been introduced to, to Fred uh, by a mutual friend. And uh, the friend said, well, this is Dennis Cunningham. He's a people's lawyer. And Fred said, well, that's kind of what I always wanted to be, but I don't think there's time for that. And there was always something very urgent about Fred, very immediate, very much we have to take action now. Uh, so Dennis ended up representing Fred and another, a very prominent black lawyer, Jim Montgomery, represented the dentist, and they got them off. And after they got them off, uh, Fred, who was uh, then had started a Black Panther chapter in Chicago in November of 68, uh, said to Dennis, well, we need some people's lawyers. We're getting busted every time we go out in the streets, every time we sell a newspaper. And Chicago at that point was the focal point for a great deal of political action. Uh, you had the Democratic Convention in 68. You had Dr. King coming to Chicago in 67 uh, and being met with, with tremendous racist protest against him. And Fred marched with Dr. King at one point uh, until a woman, a black woman he was with, got spit on by a white woman. And Fred said, I'm not going to be in a march where we can't retaliate against this racist injustice. But Fred always had a great deal of respect for Dr. King, 
uh, and actually he models his cadence and, and some of his speeches. Uh, so you had the Democratic Convention uh, and a great deal of arrest there. You had the anti-war movement. You had the civil rights movement with Dr. King. Uh, and you had this uh, sense of, uh, of the whole world was raising the issue of revolution. And particularly young people were. Uh, and it was in that atmosphere of wanting to aid these, these, for, these forces for change uh, uh, the most active that we started the People's Law Office in a sausage shop in Chicago in uh, the summer of 1969. Um, meanwhile, uh, the Panthers had started out in Oakland in 1966, uh, and they had uh, started with protesting, uh, actually, <laughs> for a traffic light in a place where kids had been hit and uh, walking uh, to uh, a junior college, and therefore, arguing for the safety. Uh, and then, of course, they did that famous march to the uh, California Assembly with guns, saying, well, if black, you know, people can carry guns, black people should be able to carry guns. Of course, they got arrested and charged, whereas white people were allowed to carry guns. But that had spread their message, the message of militancy. Uh, and this woman and, and the Panthers were uh, very much growing in Chicago. Uh, one of the women I knew who joined said, well, I joined the Panthers because rather than asking for their rights, they were demanding their rights. They're saying these, we have a right, we have a 10 point program, we have a right to food, to housing, to the end of police brutality, to not be drafted into a war where we would fight. And so they opened an office in, six, in, September, in uh, November of 68 in Chicago, two months after we did. Um, and they grew substantially. And they had a Breakfast for Children program, which started in one place. And they had it in several places after that. They were selling thousands of newspapers. They opened a medical clinic. They also had a sharp rhetoric uh, about off the pig, uh, which I'm sure challenged the police. And to them, it meant we'll get... Uh, abusive cops out of the community. And they had a program for community control of police. So the Panthers were growing um, and they were, uh, the police saw them very much as a threat. Um, and so Fred picked up a case uh, where he was accused of, of holding down an ice cream vendor and passing out 71 bars of ice cream in Maywood at a school across the street from his house. Um, no one was injured. The property damage was under $100. And normally it would have been dismissed. But we had a very uh, a prosecutor in Chicago, very close to Mayor Daley, named Edward Hanrahan. And Hanrahan had labeled the Panthers a gang. And he was running on a very much an anti-gang platform. So instead of having a charge of theft and probably a, a, a supervision, Fred ended up with an armed robbery charge. Um, and in 1969, a year later, he went to trial. We did not represent him in that case, but he got convicted. The judge indicated he was going to give him uh, probation, which would have been normal in a case where someone had no background, there was no injury, there was not minimum property damage. But under pressure from Hanrahan, he sentenced Fred to two to five years in prison. Uh, and that was in the spring of 69. Uh, by that time, Fred had a, had a big following. His 
ability to speak, and he had organized a rainbow coalition in Chicago. And Fred had the ability to speak to welfare mothers, to students, to law students. My law partner, Flint Taylor, took him to Northwestern University where he got a standing ovation. Uh, and Fred could organize, and he went to Uptown, and he said, well, you got the same problems of slum housing and police brutality as we do. And he organized a group of Appalachian young white people from West Virginia and Kentucky called the Young Patriots. And he joined with a group of Puerto Ricans in Lincoln Park in Chicago who were fighting urban renewal. And uh, that was called the Young Lords Organization. So he formed that rainbow coalition that reached out to several communities. He also had the support of SDS, which was another faction that was growing in Chicago, another factor. Their central offices were in Chicago. Uh, they were on the same street as the Panther office. They shared a printing press. So we had the whole SDS movement uh, and various aspects of it, from Rim 2 to Weatherman to... Uh, projects in Uptown called Join, uh, to eventually the Red Days of Rage in, 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 in Chicago. So Chicago was, we felt, certainly was a focal point uh, for what was going on, and Fred was organizing this Panther chapter right in the middle of it. So Fred comes out of prison. Uh, we get him out on, a, on a, an appeal bond uh, in early summer of 1969. And so Fred Hampton comes out of prison uh, and they set up a speech for him uh, in a church uh, on the west side. And it was called the People's Church. And so my law partner, Flint, and I went to that church. Uh, there was a lot of anticipation of Fred coming and speaking. And uh, if you don't mind, I could read a little bit from my book about what it was like to hear Fred Hampton speak. Uh, my colleague Flint Taylor and I found an opening in the row about halfway back. After a few minutes, things quieted down. There was a hush. A moment later, Fred emerged from the side and strode to the pulpit. Everyone stood up and clapped. The wall shook with the thunder of 300 voices chanting, Free Fred Hampton. Unlike at other Panther events, Fred was not surrounded by Panthers in leather jackets and black berets. He stood alone, dressed in a button-down shirt with a pullover sweater. He was 20 years old, with smooth, youthful skin and a boyish smile. He'd grown a little goatee in prison and wore a medium-length afro. Fred Hampton held a microphone in his right hand and looked out at the crowd. I'm free, he began in a loud voice, then repeated it. People shouted their approval. His voice got softer. I went down to the prison in Menard, which is where he was sentenced for his two to five years, thinking we were the vanguard. But down there, I got down on my knees and listened and learned from the people. I went down to the valley and picked up the beat of the people. A drumbeat started and everyone clapped to the rhythm. Fred chanted a cross between a Baptist preacher and Sly and the Family Stone. I'm high making each high into a two-syllable word, he sang, I'm high, I'm high off the people. And then chanted the words again. It was impossible for me not to join in, and soon I clapped and stomped with everyone else. When the refrain was over, Fred repeated the most common Panther slogan, Power to the People, 
but added his own variation. White power to white people, black brown power to brown people, yellow power to yellow people, black power to black people, and X power to those we left out. Fred had a good sense of humor too, although the story of his life sometimes leaves that out. And Panther power to the Vanguard party. After a volley of write-ons, Fred said, if you ever think about me and ain't gonna do no revolutionary act, forget about me. I don't want myself on your mind if you're not gonna work for the people. If you're asked to make a commitment at the age of 20 and you say, I don't wanna make a commitment at the age of 20, only because of the reason that I'm too young to die, I wanna live a little longer, then you're dead already. You have to understand that people have to pay a price for peace. If you dare to struggle, you dare to win. If you dare not struggle, then damn it, you don't deserve to win. Let me say peace to you if you're willing to fight for it. Later, Fred asked the audience to stand up. We did. He then told everyone to raise his or her right hand and repeat, I am, and we responded, I am. He then said, a revolutionary, and some in the audience repeated, a revolutionary. I considered myself a lawyer for the movement, but not necessarily of the movement. The word revolutionary stuck in my throat. Again, Fred repeated, I am. And the audience responded in kind, this time when he said a revolutionary. The response was louder. By the third or fourth time, I hesitantly joined in. And by the seventh or eighth time, I was shouting as loudly and enthusiastically as everyone else, I am a revolutionary. It was a threshold to which Fred took me and countless others. I felt my level of commitment palpably rising. Now Fred was speaking in a quieter voice. I believe I was born not to die in a car wreck or slipping on a piece of ice or of a bad heart, but I'm gonna be able to die doing the things I was born for. I believe I'm gonna die high off the people. I believe that I'm gonna be able to die as a revolutionary in the international proletarian struggle and I hope that each of you will be able to die in the international revolutionary proletarian struggle or you'll be able to live in it. And I think that struggle's going to come. Why don't you live for the people? Why don't you struggle for the people? Why don't you die for the people? Fred finished. Everyone stood and applauded again, unaware of the truth of his prophecy. We chanted, Free Fred Hampton. And the church reverberated with the clapping and stamping of feet. That was August of 1969 when we heard that and we heard about uh, Fred's his, his tremendous energy when he came out of prison, when he came out of Menard, when he talked about hearing the beat of the people. And so between August and December, um, the Panthers grew. Uh, their programs were more uh, powerful. But they also were on the were targeted by the Chicago police and the FBI. There were two Chicago police raids on the Panther office, two shootouts. Fortunately, no one was killed or injured in these shootouts, except the police beat up the people who surrendered eventually. Uh, after the federal uh, attack on the office, they set the office on fire. Um, and they uh, actually, in the Chicago police, after one of their raids, urinated on the, on, the, on the cereal that had been collected for the Breakfast for Children program. 
So there was tremendous hostility between the Panthers and the police uh, as expressed by these raids and, and uh, uh, particularly Hanrahan uh, declaring that the Panthers were a gang. Um, things, uh, as I said, escalated. Uh, the fall of 69 was also a very uh, heavy time. The conspiracy trial started. Bobby Seale was bound and gagged. Uh, this was in October, uh, I mean September 24th uh, of 1969. It was actually my first case. Uh, I represented six people who were, eight people who were part of the weather faction who were arrested outside protesting the, the uh, bonding, bonding and, the uh, bounding and sealing of Bobby Seale in the courtroom, taping his mouth shut, taping his arms. And while he was doing that, Fred was outside telling the world uh, about how Bobby Seale was being treated by the judge who wouldn't let him represent himself. And that image of Bobby Seale bound and gagged was such a reminder of slavery, such a reminder of black people's voices not being heard. And Fred's powerful speech outside, I think, made Fred a national figure uh, as well as uh, a Chicago figure. And that was in September. In October, two of the SDS groups had actions in Chicago. One was a rally through the streets. The other was a fighting the police in the streets. Um, and the police manufactured a, a case against one of the protesters, Brian Flanagan, claiming that he had struck a, a corporation counsel. First, they said he, he had hit him over the head with a baton. Then they said he kicked him. Uh, but when we went to trial, uh, the video showed that neither of those happened. But anyway, it was a tense time between the Panthers and the police, the uh, SDS and the police. And it was, and on late November, we learned that the appellate, the Supreme Court had aff affirmed the conviction of Fred and he was going to go have to go back to jail or at that point, he was deciding whether to go back to prison to serve the rest of his two to five years, or whether he would go underground, or whether he would leave the country. And so I actually went over to the Panther office on December 2nd of 1969, and he and the Panthers decided they needed to buy their office because the police were attacking it, were shooting it up, uh, and the landlord was going to evict them. Uh, they weren't very good tenants, I guess, uh, since they uh, had these all these bullet holes in their walls. And so they decided to uh, buy their office. So I went and uh, met Fred, climbed the stairs. I was let in. Uh, they had security there. I said who I was and why I was there. Uh, I had to wait out, waiting a little bit. I saw the, the newspaper, stack of newspapers. I saw the petitions for community control of police. I saw some of the food that was being collected for the breakfast program. And finally, Fred came out, and uh, I didn't know if he knew who I was. I introduced myself, and he said, yes, I know. And he put his arm around me, took me in his office, and said, we got to buy this as soon as possible. And I said, well, you know about your case. You've got, I think at that point, about four days in which he had to surrender, was ordered to surrender himself. And he was clearly uh, nervous. Uh, he wanted to get things done. He said, we got to get this signed. 
Uh, we had raised the money uh, uh, for the Panthers to buy the office, and they had. So we had actually, we were going to take the money to the landlord, and I was to draw up the contract, come back two days later on December 4th, and he would sign it, and then at least the Panther office would, would be secure. And uh, I just remember seeing this tremendously dynamic person. He sounded like a modern rapper. There's sort of staccato talking to the other Panthers. Show up, show up for the Breakfast for Children program on time. Sell your quota in newspapers. And one thing about Fred was he, he was a leader, not just because he knew how to give orders or give a great speech, but he did what he asked other people to do. He showed up at the breakfast program at 6.30 a.m. He made the food or played with the kids or talked to the parents uh, while he was there. And so he didn't ask anybody to do what he himself wasn't willing to do. And it just seemed like people got energy off of him when he would tell them what to do. And he was clearly uh, trying to get as much done as he could. So I walked down the stairs and I looked back up and there was Fred Hampton. And the last thing he raises his fist and says, power to the people. And I raised my fist and said, power to the people back. And that was on December 2nd of 1969. So I went home and uh, I had to work on our low-income housing proposal that this Poor People's Coalition had put together uh, on the 3rd. Uh, I'd stayed up all night uh, getting it done. Those were days when if you had to type something, uh, you didn't have computers. So if you had a 30-page document and they made a change and took out a paragraph on page three, you had to type it again. At that time, men didn't type much. And so we had to go to a woman who worked at our office and watch her kids till three in the morning while she typed. And uh, that was how we got things done. Of course, it was a very sexist uh, uh, separation of, of powers and jobs. But anyway, that's, we learned later, of course, to use our computer, use the computers, and didn't, didn't have to have other people prepare our documents. But it was a laborsome project. And I came home about 4 o'clock on the night of early morning of December 4th. And I had just gotten in, and I had to file it that day. So I came in, and uh, my wife was asleep, and I just kind of hardly taken off my tie. And Well, I guess I didn't have a tie on at that point. I don't remember if I'd come from the office. Anyway, I laid down on the couch, and uh, at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock, it was hardly getting light that morning as a knock on my back door. And I opened it, and there's my other law, one of my other law partners, Skip Andrew. And he looks at me, and he says, the chairman's been killed. The pigs raided his apartment this morning. And I looked at him, and I, I couldn't believe it, because here was this person who had so much life, who made us feel invincible, and I was being told he was killed. And I just was stunned. And I said, you know, like, well, what can I do? And he said, well, I'm going to go to the... Morgue and me and part of a member of knows him is going to identify his body, and then we're going to go to the apartment because the police left it unsealed. And he said there are three survivors at the county jail who were not shot, and I think you should go and interview them. So with that, he was gone. I told my wife, and she was working on a. Uh, a documentary on Fred at that point. The documentary became eventually became The Murder of Fred Hampton, which 
I would advise any everyone to see. It came out a year, a year and a half later. Of course, it began when Fred was alive, and then it took up the story of how he was assassinated. But anyway, uh, she couldn't believe it either. She was crying, and I uh, went down to the police station that morning. Uh, and I got there in the morning, and, uh, and sure enough, there were three people there. Uh, uh, Deborah Johnson, who was Fred's fiance, who had been in bed with him. Uh, when the, I learned on the way, on the radio, the police said uh, there was a raid this morning on the Panther office, uh, and the police were attacked by the Panthers. Uh, they, unbeknownst to them, uh, the police had these weapons, and they opened fire, and uh, as they said there, but for the grace of God, we would have been killed. I learned that not only was Fred killed, but Mark Clark, a panther from Peoria, was also killed, um, and four panthers had been shot and were at Cook County Hospital. So uh, I got to the police station that morning, and I said I wanted to see Deborah Johnson and the two other people, uh, Lewis Trulock and Harold Bell, and the police said, well, we have orders from Hanrahan that uh, you can't, no, these people can't be seen at this point. And I happened to have a statute, a, a copy of the criminal code, and I said, it's a, a, a crime. I think it was a felony to not allow a lawyer to see someone in custody. So I ended up calling someone I knew at the state's attorney's office, and I said, you know, uh, come on, you know, you can't, Hanrahan can't do that. And he said, well, I don't know. And it was somebody I kind of knew because we were on the other side of a lot of cases. And uh, he said, just a minute. And he went in and spoke to Hanrahan, and he got me permission to see the, see the survivors. Uh, and I said, I owe you one. Or he said, you owe me one. Anyway, I go into an interview room of, a little while later, and uh, I sit down, and then they open the other side. Uh, one side is for visitors or lawyers, and the other side is for people in, in custody. And in walks Deborah Johnson in a robe, uh, clearly pregnant uh, and crying. And she looks at me, and you know, I introduce myself and say I'm with the People's Law Office, and I say how are you? And, and, and I said, how's the baby? And she said, well, I think, I think the baby's okay. They roughed me up, but I haven't been shot. And I said, what happened? And she said, well, the police came in firing. There was no announcement. Uh, there was just a huge amount of gunfire. And one of the Panthers or two of the Panthers came back in the room where I was, and I was sleeping next to Fred. And I tried to wake Fred up. And Fred had to wake up, and of course there's a tremendous amount of noise that night with the bullets going, and the bed is shaking. And Fred sort of half raises his head and then puts it down. This is what she tells me. And she says, and then there was a lull in the firing, and the police, somebody yelled from our room, we got a pregnant sister in here. And they took, and she said, the police came in, and there was a halt in the firing, and took me and the other Panthers out, in the hallway, pushed us up against the wall, and I saw two policemen go back in, um, and I heard one of them say, is he dead yet? And I heard two shots, 
and the other one said he's good and dead now. And that's how mom, and then I, after talking to her, you know, I said to her, what, what can I do? You know, and I didn't have, and she didn't have an answer. I didn't have an answer. Uh, and I interviewed also the other two people uh, who had been in the apartment who were not shot. Um, and they told me similar stories about how the police came in, did not identify themselves. Uh, they had run to wake up Fred. Fred never really woke up. And I also learned during that time that there were four people in Cook County Hospital, one of whom was Doc Satchel, who was the head of the uh, uh, medical program, uh, the medical clinic, and he had been shot four times, sort of up and down his stomach. <clears throat> Turns out with a 45 caliber pistol, uh, 45 caliber machine gun. Uh, when I got back to my office, we turned on the TV and Hanrahan was reporting, the, the police were assigned to Hanrahan, he was the prosecutor. So Hanrahan was reporting their version, uh, which was we knocked on the door and we were met by gunfire. They kept firing, uh, three times we yelled, stop, cease fire, and three times there was a brief halt and they broke the ceasefire and kept shooting at us. Uh, and one of them said, well, and then Fred Hampton was shooting at us from the back bedroom at the back door as we came in. And that's the story that Hanrahan had, had, had actually, the police at the scene had not cordoned it off, had not declared it a crime scene, had left it open, had done uh, a half-assed job of picking up a few bullets uh, and then left and took the pet and then took weapons they found there and Hanrahan held this big press conference with all these weapons uh, on the table uh, and then gave this story. Uh, of course, he didn't have time or didn't take time to test to see which weapons had been fired, which weapons belonged to the police. They didn't do a, a firearms examination of the scene. And so fortunately, my Skip Andrew went to the apartment that morning after the morgue. He had the foresight, and I don't know at that point, we weren't thinking as lawyers, but he took a minister and a filmmaker to the apartment and filmed him gathering the evidence, him filming the walls, and him preserving the evidence. And so very quickly, there was a double narrative because the bullets and the direction of the gunshot in the walls showed 90 plus shots coming in from the direction of the police. The only shot outward came from a shotgun which belonged to Mark Clark at the front door and it probably occurred after he was shot because it went straight up into the ceiling of the hallway. So it looks like a, uh, a non-intent, you know, a, a shot after he had been fatally wounded because he was at the front door and he was shot through the front door. So that's the narrative that we inherited uh, on December 4th of 1969. That's uh, uh, Go ahead. Uh, that's a great overview. I, I want to pause there for one second and ask yes. uh, Hanrahan, uh, Hanrahan, right? Um, yes. It, it also, I, I completely agree with you. You underlining even further uh, Skip's uh, presence of mind, I think is the way you put it to be able to go there and do yeah. that, which is brilliant. 
um, which gives us so much of this evidence. Um, so I'm from Chicago. Um, I'm from the West suburbs. Okay. Actually, my um, high school I went to and I competed with actually is in the same conference as Proviso East, where Fred went to school. Okay. So I've known about Fred yeah. for a while. Um, and it was it was weird, uh, a weird type of state of mind I would get in when you would name some of these streets, both in Chicago um, and in Maywood, because I'm somewhat familiar with the area of Maywood, and I'm very familiar with the areas of Chicago that you talk about. But what I'm not aware of, and what I don't think many of the listeners are aware of, is the bravado of the police force and the government of the city of Chicago to do that. Like, can you help me understand what what was Hanrahan thinking and and how how overwhelmingly confident was he in both I mean even if we just put aside the fact that the police went in here in this obvious assassination to hold this type of press conference like did he did he honestly think you know that he was going to get away with this like what what was the the stream of events and frame of mind that someone could be in in that place to think that this this was going to be just that the narrative was going to get caught that you know whatever he's pushing out there into the media was going to be accepted and you know if he cuts the head of the snake of the the black panther party which is fred hampton that it was all going to come crumbling down it was all going to be you know get swept under the rug did he really like i guess really what i'm trying to get at is how the how the fuck was that possible like how was it that somebody could could do that and and have the gumption to think they were going to get away with it what was the what was the the time what was like the feeling on the street that that was happening and and how maddening and and fearful was it for anybody that this type of thing could happen just from a, a, a one of the most powerful members of government is insofar as the law goes well some context to that is as people know chicago was ruled pretty much by daily and the Daily Machine, uh, Irish people from Bridgeport. Uh, when the uh, rebellions broke out in Chicago uh, after Dr. King was murdered, uh, uh, Mayor Daley issued his shoot to kill, shoot, uh, uh, shoot to kill people breaking in, shoot to maim late, uh, looters. So that was his response to the rebellions or the reaction to Dr. King's thing. It was very much a law and order thing. And of course, we remembered him at the Democratic Convention daily uh, and the Chicago police attacking the protesters who were here to protest against the Vietnam, who were there to protest against the Vietnam War. And Daly spoke out at that point against the protesters. So Hanrahan was the heir apparent to Daly. He also was from Bridgeport. He uh, went to Harvard Law School. He had been the U.S. attorney. Then he became the state's attorney. And the state's attorney was the, you know, sort of the background frequently for mayors. And it was, the, the state's attorney was the prosecutor and the tougher you could be on crime, the tougher you could be on gangs, uh, the better. And so Hanrahan was very anxious to add to his reputation, uh, you know, um, and at one point, he even went so far early in this, uh, after he was elected, to call gang members animals, which somewhat alienated him from the black community and also showed what his attitude was. So I can't say that when Hanrahan uh, 
approved the raid or when his office did, he uh, totally knew what was going to happen. But once Fred was killed, I think he saw this as a, an advancement of his career, that being, in, you know, taking uh, responsibility for, for the killing of the leader of the Panthers who talked about uh, off the pig, that that was going to establish him as the uh, heir apparent to Daly. And I don't think he realized that while black people in Chicago were mixed about the Panthers, had different views, uh, they didn't accept the fact that a young black leader could be murdered in his bed at 4.30 in the morning. And to that, uh, that broke uh, the, t the strength of uh, a lot of black polit political figures who'd been loyal to Daley. Uh, this was a step too far. Um, and some of the aldermen and one of the congressmen spoke out against uh, Daley, one of whom was Harold Washington, who was in the city council, who became the first black mayor of Chicago. So the other thing is I don't think he realized uh, the extent to which we could prove uh, what the police were saying was a lie. So he didn't just say that because obviously he wasn't there, so what he was getting was what the police told him happened. But he put it out as the truth and he went, he doubled down and he had the police actually do a, a reenactment for one of the TV stations in which they gave their version. And he also gave his exclusive to the Chicago Tribune which ran this exclusive interview with, this is the inside story. And when he gave it to the Tribune, he gave them a photograph of the back door of the apartment that had two black dots next to the door handle. And he said, these are, the, these are proof that the two shots that Fred Hampton fired from his bed as the police came in the back door. So we meanwhile, and Skip in particular, but Flint in our office, we brought in a firearms expert uh, and we put dowels in the wall, which are like little wooden sticks that show the directions of bullets. And you can tell an incoming bullet is a smaller hole and the outcoming on the other side the, is splayed away from the direction of the bullet. So we put dowels in and it showed very quickly where the bullets came from and where they were headed. And many of them were headed towards the bed where Fred and, and Deborah were sleeping. Um, and so the Panthers, uh, almost the day following the shootout, opened the apartment up and took thousands of people through the apartment and showed them what happened, including the bloody mattress where Fred was killed. Uh, and so the public, and we got a reporter to come out there and said, you know, these two dots next to the back door, <coughs> look at them. And he did. And they were nail heads. <coughs> so with this, Hanrahan and the police story began to come undone. And even though uh, they had charged the survivors all with attempted murder, um, and they had gotten uh, somebody at the crime lab to say they were two shotgun shells that matched the weapon of a, of a Panther shotgun, and two police officers said, uh, this woman on the front couch, Brenda Harris, had fired at them as they came in the front door, two shotgun shots. Uh, it didn't match up because the shotgun shell, the whatever came out of this shotgun disappeared. You can't fire two shotgun blasts at police coming in a door and there's no 
uh, impact points of anything, anywhere. Uh, and the police had some theory that it went out through three doorways and around the curve. And one of the cops said, well, what happened to those shotgun shells? And he famously said his deposition. I think it must have gotten caught on an air hook. So basically, they had no <laughs> evidence to support their story. Uh, when we had a FBI, uh, there was a grand jury. The FBI firearms examiner looked at those two shotgun shells and said, no, they came from the police shotguns. The police had gone in with shotguns, a carbine, handguns, and a forty-five caliber machine gun. And they had stitched the wall between the living room and the bedrooms with that machine gun. And that's what injured the three people in the next room um, and could have killed Fred Hampton. The bullets were towards his bed, but they went below that. And when we had the autopsy, two things showed up. One, that they were, Fred was killed by two parallel bullets to the side of his head uh, from a short range, which proved that what Deborah Johnson told us was right and correct, unfortunately, and that he was assassinated. Uh, but also in his blood, they found a great deal of a chemical called cecobarbital, uh, which was enough to put somebody to sleep. Uh, and it, it, it's a heavy sedative. And everybody said Fred didn't take drugs of any kind. So the question was, how was this cecobarbital ever got into his blood system? So... We ended up being, and some of the most prominent criminal defense lawyers in Chicago and, uh, and joined with us in defending the Panther survivors. And then that April, they dropped the charges suddenly. Uh, and we weren't quite sure. They claimed it was because they couldn't prove their case. It was because this evidence of the shotgun shells was actually evidence the police fired. Uh, and so, you know, some people said, well, that's, you know, great. There's no, people kind of know what happened. There's nobody going to go to prison. But uh, that wasn't enough. And the Panthers and some lawyers from the Lawyers Guild came in. And we had hardly ever been in civil court. We were defending the movement and getting all their harassment cases. And these lawyers came in and said, you know, with us and with the black community, you, you can't let this die. You can't, you got to find out what happened. So we put together a civil rights suit in the spring of 1970 and filed it against Hanrahan, against the crime lab, against the shooters, um, against the phony investigation they did. Uh, they basically accepted whatever the police said um, and brought it this conspiracy case. Uh, we ended up with a very, very terrible hostile judge who came from Alabama who hated uh, us and our claims and the Panthers and the fact that we were accusing the police of murder. Um, and from the get-go, he did everything he could to try to defeat us. Meanwhile, the police were represented by private lawyers who were very well paid. Um, and we didn't have hardly any money at all. There was a December 4th committee and they did raise money uh, I think we were making $75 a week at that point. Uh, uh, we were living collectively. Some, many of us who worked at the People's Law Office, we were young, we didn't have families. Uh, and we took on this case and, and a very hostile judge. And the judge actually threw our case out initially 
saying the charges, not the actions of the police, but the charges were scandalous. So we had to go and appeal that because after all these arguments and briefs, we were nowhere. Um, and so it was, you know, after filing the suit and getting thrown out or out of court temporarily, uh, it was a, it was a bad time. It was it was very hard. But we met with the plaintiffs, and particularly Iberia Hampton, Fred's mother, and Fanny Clark, Mark Clark's mother. They just had this tremendous strength, and the other survivors. Uh, and they said, we got to do it. And uh, we met with them and they said, you know, we'll do what we can to raise money. We'll try to come to court when there's a trial. And there was a December 4th committee started a lot by Fred Hampton's brother, Bill. And so we filed this suit. Uh, nothing but happened for a couple of years. We were thrown out of court. And then a couple of things happened in 72, which changed the whole trajectory of the lawsuit. The first was the appellate court said, no, we had stated a claim and we could bring our suit. And so we were back in court. And the other thing that happened was we're reading the newspaper one day and it says a man, uh, uh, a man who we, uh, a man named William O'Neill uh, was involved with a Chicago policeman and they were actually running a uh, ransom racket and they'd pick up drug dealers and take them over to Gary and threaten to kill him and had actually killed a man. And so they had arrested William O'Neill and a Chicago policeman named Stanley Robinson. And when he was arrested, O'Neill's defense was, I'm an FBI informant and I was just infiltrating Stanley Robinson and his friends. Well, we knew who, F who William O'Neill was. Uh, he had been in the Panthers. He had actually been head of security in the Panthers. He had actually encouraged the Panthers to do kind of crazy things. He had created an electric chair, supposedly, to scare informants when he was one. He was a very flashy street guy. Uh, we did, of course, and, and he rose because he could fix things and to Rose at one point to being in charge of the security at the Panthers. Uh, he was demoted because some of his ideas, he was talking about shooting a missile from the Panther office to the mayor's office and having this electric chair. And Fred said, you know, cut that shit out. That's crazy. <clears throat> but he was in a prominent position in the party. He was with Fred Hampton, uh, on the night of December 4th. He was in the apartment. They had gone there after a political education class. Uh, they had drunk Kool-Aid or Fred had. Uh, we didn't know whether O'Neill had given it to him. Uh, and the other thing that came out in that year, there had been a burglary at the FBI office in outside Philadelphia. And some documents had been stolen. It was a group that was attempting to destroy the draft records. The documents talked about an FBI program called COINTELPRO. And at first, nobody quite knew what that was. But when some reporters got on it and investigators got on it, it turned out that was a clandestine program that J. Edgar Hoover had started in the 60s. And it targeted the left and the movement and the black movement in particular. And as the church committee, which was investigating Watergate and other things in the late, at 73, 74, they began to get documents. 
and we were asking for documents in our case uh, having to do with the raid. And so documents began to came out and we were wondering is there a connection between William O'Neill an FBI informant and the raid. And uh, it turned out we learned that, F that, uh, that the FBI had continued O'Neill on the payroll, that he was getting paid as a Panther, that he was reporting regularly to his control, uh, Roy Mitchell. Um, and so we kept asking for documents, COINTELPRO documents relating, is, is there a connection between this program? Because we had learned that the overall objectives of COINTELPRO were to, uh, pr uh, to uh, prevent, well, basically was dis disrupt, destroy, and neutralize the Black Panthers by any means, by whatever means necessary. They weren't the only target. Yes, go ahead. I just want to, I, I just want to underline this because you, you've said so many things densely, um, and I wanted to ask you about Cointel, <laughs> Cointel Pro. So, just to underline this, because this is like a. The word conspiracy theory gets thrown around a lot now, uh, probably more so than ever time before, probably because of social media, right? And if you were to stop right. somebody on the street and tell them this. They would tell you, "Oh, get out of here! Like this is this is crazy. You're crazy. This is this is what are you talking about?" But the reality is, this isn't just true. It happened, and it's well documented, right? So I, I want to underline this, and then correct me, and then pick up where you are in the story. So no, I I think looking back, uh, yes, and the things that came out astounded us uh, in there how explicit they were. So. In spite of the judge saying COINTELPRO wasn't relevant, we began to get documents that, as I said, the uh, program had not only were the Panthers and SNCC, and they talked about a program uh, uh, about preventing the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the masses. And they mentioned that Elijah Muhammad, the head of the Muslims, uh, that Malcolm X might have been such a person Dr. King could be if he gave up his claim of, of nonviolence. Uh, and they mentioned Stokely Carmichael. So they had an explicit program to, quote, prevent the rise of Messiah who could unify and electrify the masses. They also talked about dis disrupt, destroy, and neutralize the Panthers. That Hoover had said the Panthers are the biggest threat to the internal security of the U.S., they talked about preventing the alliance of the Panthers with other organizations. Uh, and they talked about preventing, putting out stories. And in the course of, what, of our discovery, we discovered that the head of the FBI in Chicago had sent a letter, not on FBI stationery, on blank paper, to Jeff Fort, the leader of the Blackstone Rangers, the strongest and most well-armed gang in Chicago. And the letter to Fort had said, Dear Brother Jeff, I'm just a black brother. I've been hanging out with the Panthers, and they got a hit out on you. I know what I'd do if I were you, a black brother. So basically, they were encouraging Fort and the Rangers to attack the Panthers uh, and telling them. When we eventually interviewed the head of the FBI on the stand, we said, what did you mean by a hit? And he said, well, a hit's a nonviolent attack. And so that was kind of an unusual description. It didn't quite fit with the jar. Yeah, that's one way to put it. Yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> so anyway, uh, as more documents came out, uh, I think 
we kept asking for documents in court. And one day we had been told there were files worth, but we only got 14 documents. Uh, and so we went back and Flint and I are looking through this and I look at this document uh, and the U.S. Attorney had turned it over and it looked like it was a floor plan of the apartment where Fred and Deborah were sleeping. I want to pause here. And what were what was going through your mind right here, like right in this moment? So you hear about COINTELPRO. Okay, so I'm very close. I'm, I'm fairly close to my grandmother. Okay. And I've had this conversation with her multiple times. And I said, what was it like when Kennedy got shot? And she goes, oh, everybody cried. She goes, everybody cried constantly. And for the next 10 years, I never felt a moment when I was sitting down that I didn't feel like I was shaking. She's like, it started with that and it kept going on through. Now, my grandmother, like she worked for Hubert Humphrey. Um, She did a lot of things like that in politics. She was a lobbyist. Uh, She was a grant writer, all those type of things. But she wasn't in the shit. You were in the shit like you were you were in there mucking, shoveling shit, figuring out how to get this done and how to how to. I mean, I want to use the word protect, but like you were the the legal arm trying to get things, get justice served and to get people that were literally getting shot at. And and now we find out there's a floor plan of the of the apartment. Um, There's heavy sedatives. I don't don't know. I don't think they're barbiturates, but something along the lines of that that was in Fred's body. Yeah. Two temple shots. It was clearly that was orchestrated. You know, there's police officers that that conducted it, and then there's a FBI informant that once again sounds like something from a bad episode, or like a knockoff of The Sopranos, in which an FBI informant is trying to get everybody to do these crazy things. Turns out that's all true. Like, what was your anxiety level? Like, you have you frame this very well in the book about the Vietnam War. And, and like the the issues around that and, and the lies and kind of like you, you put Pol Pot in a very interesting light of, of like the uh, revolutionary struggle and, and those type of things. What, what were you feeling in this moment? How were you able to sleep? Were you able to sleep? Like, were you were you concerned that you would be a target? Were you concerned there were going to be more targets? Like, how, how would it feel that the status quo of the entire arm of the federal government seems to take issue with people trying to demand their civil rights? Well, when Fred was killed, as I, as I say, I was kind of amazed that my law partner had the presence of mind to take a cameraman and a, uh, uh, a minister into the apartment to picture, photograph, to film the gathering of evidence, what it looked like. Because frankly, we were thinking, if a if a if a civil rights leader could be murdered by his in his bed by police assigned to the main prosecutor, you know what what kind of justice is there? You know if if the law enforcement mechanism, the not only the police but the state's attorney is involved in a murder like this, what is the potential in the courts for any kind of justice? So. That's one of the reasons that we were amazed at how level-headed he was, because at that point, as movement people, we were so outraged and, you know, uh, but anyway, we continued this struggle. We filed a civil suit. Uh, As things begin to come out, all we still knew when we filed it was the Chicago police, the Hanrahan, and then all these people jumped on to hide what happened, the crime lab, the phony investigation. When it came out about O'Neill and this COINTELPRO program, well, how was that involved? 
And when we got this floor plan, it didn't say who, the, who wrote the floor plan. It said confidential source one. So we knew there was a floor plan. We knew the FBI had it. We didn't know who wrote it, how it got transmitted, or anything else. But it was more than suspicious because the floor plan would complete, even said bed where Hampton and Johnson sleep. I mean, that floor plan had the furniture of the apartment. And sure enough, the bed was where many of the shots that the police had converged. So did they have that floor plan? The police had claimed, well, they had their own informant and he gave them the information that led to the ra warrant, that led to the raid. Uh, we never believed that because when we asked them, do you have any files on that? Oh, no, we destroyed them. Well, who is that? I can't tell you. Uh, and it just didn't make any sense uh, that they had this. So all of a sudden we had this floor plan. And then we went back and took O'Neill's deposition a second time because we didn't know what to ask him the first time. And he said, yes, he had drawn up that floor plan with his control. Roy Mitchell had asked him for a floor plan of the apartment. They had sat down together in a bar downtown Chicago and they drew the floor plan. Uh, obviously he'd been asked where the furniture was, where the doorway was. Only somebody on the inside could have done that. And he gave it to uh, his FBI uh, control, Roy Mitchell. And at first he was kind of cocky. Well, you know, I mean, he's a streetwise guy. What do you think they wanted this floor plan for? And he said to us, well, maybe there were housing violations there. Or, you know, some ridiculous answer. Uh, the third time we took his deposition, he admitted that he figured it was for a raid. But when he heard about the raid a few days later, he refused to take responsibility for it. Anyway, we using this, we took the deposition of Roy Mitchell and uh, the head of the uh, FBI at that time. At that time, had been Johnston, uh, who became the head of the police board years later. And we followed this trail, and sure enough, the FBI sort of internally wanted to get credit for the raid. So they readily admitted, we took this floor plan to Hanrahan. The, we actually took it to the gang intelligence unit of the Chicago police, and they didn't execute it. And I think they smelled a rat. Like, if you, the FBI, say they sawed off shotguns, which is a federal violation, why are you doing the raid? Why do you want somebody else to do it? Uh, but Hanrahan, I think, in his uh, ambition, uh, his office took it and said, we'll do it. You know, they didn't have to do it. They weren't the logical people to do it. Uh, but they armed themselves. And so uh, Mitchell said, I met with them. I gave them the floor plan. The people who carried out the raid claimed they never met with Mitchell and they didn't have the floor plan. But, you know, and but, but it, in, after the raid, the, the FBI went to the uh, person who was the uh, leader, Jalovec, who was Hanrahan's assistant, said, do you mind if we acknowledge that we were the source for the raid? And Jalovec says, no, even though his own cops say they have their own informant. So anyway, we now have the FBI the COINTELPRO program. The next document we get is a document, is a $300 bonus that O'Neill was given after the raid because his information was invaluable 
to what many of the FBI agents call the success of the raid. Fuck, is that really how the FBI works? They gave uh, O'Neill a $300 bonus. They Eventually, we discovered they also gave his control uh, a bonus, too. Wow, that's like $1,000. That like, in today? Well, uh, oh, yeah. it was. It was That was in addition to what they got all the time. This is a special bonus. This is not right, like... Right, no... Uh, they were paying him that much or more every month, which was quite a bit. They gave him a bonus for extraordinary, for this being special, uh, and that because it was not not available from any other source, and it carried out our objectives. I mean, that's the way they described it. So internally, they were taking credit for the raid. Externally, they were pretending they had nothing to do with it. There was a federal grand jury, and it never uncovered the federal role. Pro or O'Neill. Yeah, well, those those things are set up for publicity stunts often, more often than not. So that's that's not shocking. Right. It's more shocking how flippant they were with bonuses. And um, I I, uh, I have this truism that once you that the silence is louder than the noise. And if if if, uh-huh. if this is what if the, if the noise they're generating inside for this is this loud and well documented, what, what's the silence like? What else are they getting away with? Um, which uh-huh. is, I, I just find this all shocking. Um, but uh, sorry, continue. That's, it's, uh, I, I remember reading that, but that's just, it's shocking to hear it again in such a uh, flippant manner of saying like um, patting somebody on the back after such a grotesque act. Um, yeah. And documents that came out two years ago for the first time show that Hoover and his right-hand people were monitoring what O'Neill was doing. They were getting sent this thing about weapons being at the Panther apartment and the floor plan. So it wasn't like some lower downs or even the head of the Chicago FBI started this. They were watching this from the top. And unfortunately, Hoover died before we got to the part in the suit where we joined the FBI. We eventually joined the FBI, the head of the FBI in Chicago, uh, Roy Mitchell, the control O'Neill. Uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, Hoover was dead by that time, so we could, we never took his deposition. And we never got even to the, we wanted to add John Mitchell and Nixon uh, because we would have been like to hear what, what they knew and when they knew it. You know, how was it reported to them if they weren't involved in the planning of it? How, how did they report it and what was their response? But loved- the judge wouldn't allow us to join I would have loved that. I mean, though- some of Nixon's... Uh- I sometimes go like once every couple of years, I'll go in a deep dive of Nixon because I find him fascinating. Um, he's, he's an interesting, I don't find him fascinating in a way that it's like, I always give this example. Like I don't enjoy uh, studying the Patriot Act, but I think it's necessary. And I think Nixon is something uh-huh. similar to that. Um, but his recordings, which is hilarious that he recorded himself so much are so flippantly yes. racist. Um, and just it, it, almost like he was doing it gallivanting that I would have loved to have understand more of what he knew about COINTELPRO um, and in particular Fred Hampton. And it's, you know, you, the, the timeline that you gave of Fred Hampton was, you know, there's, it's so stacked with events, but I mean, he, he died young and, 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 and him rising to a national stage or even the States of Chicago out of Maywood into his death was what, two years, you know? So for him to get to this level of, the FBI watching him is both, I think, a example of the Black Panther Party and the perceived threat to the status quo, 
as well as the rising star of i mean if you i think you, you said earlier that fred said like if you don't seize opportunity and, and try to do something then you're dead already or if you're afraid of, of dying you're yes. dead already um you know I, I think that he kind of embodied that in in such a unfortunate way fred as you as you mentioned he had just turned 21 in august of 1969 um so uh, yes, his youthfulness was, and his exuberance, and also his the fact that he was very, really well read, uh, and could speak to so many deep, different people. But when you see that original, the, the documentary that turned into the murder of Fred Hampton, you can see what, and it was pretty well captured in the the movie uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, by the person who played Fred, except he was 30 years old and Fred was 21. That, and that's, that's, anyway. that's just a, stock, a shocking thing, too, of, of how much he was able to do in such a short period of time while being so young. I mean, when I was 21, I was I was more full of testosterone and I was reading philosophy and all that kind of stuff. Sure. But I wasn't I, I couldn't uh -huh. imagine, you know, the, the set of circumstances. You know, I, I when I was reading your book, I I never knew that Fred Hampton had a connection to Emmett Till and that had to have been such a strong imprint on him in some manner or another. And I also think it's a rather uh, unfortunate thing that, you know, one of the infamous things of Emmett Till's uh, murder was the open casket and, you know, and then kind of almost like the open casket of the crime scene and walking people through it. Um, it's unfortunate, but I, uh, yeah, it it, it it was it was very much history repeating yeah. itself. And when I interviewed uh, Iberia, Fred's mother, or got to know her really well, and she just says to me one day, "Well, I used to babysit for Emmett Till when his mother went to work, and we called him Bobo, and he was a really rambunctious kid." And uh, so Fred and Fred was much younger when she babysat Emmett Till, but of course. He knew about it, and uh, Iberia said, no, I, I couldn't go to that funeral and, and see that young man, you know, what happened to him. But And then it, it definitely affected them because uh, Fred and, and, and his brother and sister would go south frequently in the summertime, and they'd go back to Haynesville. And, you know, it, it, it's very strange that... Uh, uh, that they had still had fond memories and they grew up on a farm. And uh, after uh, I went down with Iberia Hampton years later to, and spent a weekend with her, because every day, every year they'd go down at Mother's Day and they would go to the cemetery where they buried Fred in Louisiana. And she would read that. And actually, after Fred was buried in Louisiana, some people from the Klan came and shot up the tombstone that his tombstone. But Anyway, uh, I think they were particularly aware, and they were, you know, that she was aware her sons went back down to the place where they had fond memories and they had, you know, terrifying memories too. You know? Yeah, I bet. So taking it back, so you have these documents. You were yes. able to depose <clears throat> Nixon. Um, where, where are you at with the case after that? So finally, uh, we get it. We join the FBI. We join O'Neill as a defendant. We join Mitchell. We join Piper, who's the head of the Racial Matter Squad, and the head of the FBI in Chicago. 
And on the day the trial starts, uh, the judge relents and says, okay, we can bring COINTELPRO into it. And, you know, we've been sitting on these documents. We knew we had the evidence. And we knew he knew we had the evidence. But anyway, in a passion speech by Jim Montgomery, uh, he, let, he let the documents in. So uh, they still had given us maybe 50 FBI documents. And at the beginning of the trial, one of the, the FBI agent, Roy Mitchell, <clears throat> you know, they had said, or the, the, the U.S. attorneys had said, that is the entire Panther file. And we couldn't quite believe that. That's the file on Fred and the Panthers and everything. And so we had to call with the FBI witnesses and kind of get from them uh, more information because we didn't have many documents. And also question them, of course, about the floor plan, the bonus. And in his testimony, this FBI agent, uh, in his uh, rigor to try to make Fred look bad, says, uh, in response to a question from Montgomery about something totally different, uh, says, oh, and I think that was the episode in which Fred was coming back from Wisconsin and he, he uh, uh, was talking about killing the policeman, the highway patrolman who pulled him over. And we said, well, that's interesting. Uh, where did that happen? And, well, it happened here. Well, you must have written a document about that. We don't have anything about that. Uh, well, I probably did, but I don't know where it would be. Well, why don't you look for it? So he's on the stand for another three weeks. Uh, and finally, uh, he tries to get off the stand before, and we say, right, he's leaving. Well, where are those, where's the, where's the, did you find that document? Yeah, I found it. It was in some obscure file with the name of the uh, person they visited in Wisconsin. We said, oh, okay, but wasn't it in the Panther file and in Fred Hampton's file? Yes. And the judge at that point said, wait a minute, and he got angry. I ordered you to produce all those files. I want you to bring them in tomorrow morning. And we go to court the next morning and we hear uh, something rolling down the hallway of the federal courthouse and they come in with three shopping carts full of files. I think it measured 47 feet worth of files on the Black Panthers on Fred Hampton that they had never given us. Um, and so we were kind of blown away. We're in the middle of a trial. Do we want a mistrial? Uh, we, Flint wanted that and I, I, you know, I was mixed. Montgomery didn't want it. We've got this much time in. Uh, so the judge says, well, he gave us this thing. I'll let you read the file. Half a day, a week, every day you can read the files and half a day will be in court, which is not a very good way to try a case if you're a plaintiff, having to read your files and then try to go to court in the afternoon. It's not good for the jury. It's not good. It's terrible. Uh, but that's the, that was the relief. And then the judge tells the jury, uh, listen, there was a mistake here. It's my fault. No, don't blame anybody for this discrepancy. So that's just one of the handicaps that we were under. Uh, and the judge harassed us, uh, misrepresented. At one point, the other side had said, we can't call it a raid. We kind of call it the, ser uh, the service of a search warrant. And at one point, though, they made a mistake and they called it a raid. And they made a stipulation that a gun was used in a raid. So I repeated what they said. And the judge said, Mr. Hajer, you, you, you've misrepresented what they said. This was not a raid. It was a service of a search warrant. 
I'm going to warn you and the jury that you're deliberately telling them a falsehood and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, <laughs> so we finally get a transcript. That's the other thing. The other side had rigged the cost of the transcripts up so that we couldn't afford them for the daily transcript. When we finally got a daily transcript, it showed I was right. Um, and so we brought that to the judge's attention to correct the jury and tell them that I had not misrepresented it. And he just waved his hand and said, no. Flynn came back and threw his file at the, <laughs> on the table and knocked over a water pitcher. And the judge calls the jury in who were not even there and said, see what Mr. Taylor did? He threw this water pitcher on the ground. You know, I'm going to hold him in contempt. And that was his, one of his contempts. He went to jail that night. Later on, I finally got Hanrahan on the stand. And we know now that the, the deal was made with there was a federal grand jury and a state grand jury. And they never, they never, they indicted Hanrahan for obstructing justice, but not for murder. But anyway, the, they, the document indicated that Hanrahan and the FBI made a deal. You drop charges against the Panthers. And we, that was the, uh, what Hanrahan would, would do, and Hanrahan would never disclose about the FBI's role. And so that was the deal they made before COINTELPRO came out. How illegal, so I've got how illegal is that? Well, it, it, it meant to <coughs> basically either not bringing up or suborning perjury by denying the a, a lot of the truth, you know? So with Hanrahan on the stand, and I've got this document, I say, isn't it true, Mr. Hanrahan, that you made this deal that you wouldn't expose the federal role um, and, and the, then you would drop the charges against the Panthers? The idea was if the charges against the Panthers are dropped, who's ever going to pursue this and know what really happened? You know, we, we know the police came in and so forth, but the FBI role would never get uncovered because there would be no criminal charges. So I confronted Hanrahan with that. Uh, the judge had told me not to go into it, but I did go back into this document. I said, isn't it true, Mr. Hanrahan, that you and the uh, FBI made a deal that you wouldn't expose that? And the judge said, before the other side responded, uh, objection sustained. And I said, judge, you can't cover up the cover-up. And he said, Mr. Hayes, you're going to go to jail. And he immediately had the marshals put handcuffs on me, put me in and take me to the MCC and put me in an orange jumpsuit that night. So that was just a day in the life of what it was like. And, and uh, I was so angry. And uh, I spent the night not working on my continued cross-examination of Hanrahan, but what could I say that would uh, about the judge? <laughs> so I get to court the next morning, the court reporters, the reporters say, well, what was it like in the MCC? And I said, well, I didn't like the conditions so much, but the company was a big improvement over Judge Perry's court. <laughs> <laughs> so I got my small amount of revenge. It sounds like a kangaroo uh, court, though. It, it was a, definitely a kangaroo court. And if we didn't know it all along, if we didn't know it by him continuously signaling the jury that we were misbehaving, that we were misrepresenting things, uh, we come to the end of the trial 18 months. We started in January of 76. We ended in uh, May of 77. Imagine a civil jury trial. I mean, uh, I think we had a, a whole uh, 
career's worth of experience being in against a, a, a at that, that time, Flynn had been a law student, had barely I'd been a law student, and I I'd started the case at least when I was only three years out of law school. But um, anyway, we get to the end of the trial, and the judge decide, gives jury the instructions that the defendants asked for, and the, the instructions he gives this jury, this civil jury, is if the Panthers used anti-police rhetoric or if the police had illegal weapons, then the police were justified in what they did. Now, that isn't the law. You don't murder somebody in the bed, either because they talk out against the police, or maybe they have an illegal weapon in their apartment. You know, that's just not the law. But the judge figured with those instructions, how could they not... It, it was un, you know, There were weapons found that were illegal. Uh, at least there was one shot-off shotgun that they said was shorter than was allowed. Um, it was unclear if O'Neill brought that in or somebody else. Uh, and, of course, they did have anti-police rhetoric. So the jury goes out with those instructions and us feeling like, how can they decide for us? And three or four days later, they're deadlocked. Uh, I guess the judge figured, wow, if they're not going to decide with those instructions, what might they do? So we say, Judge, well, you've got to call a mistrial because the jury, and the jury had put out an instruction, we're hung, well, we can't decide. Uh, and he had told them, keep deliberating. So he calls them back in, and they're sitting there, and he says, I want to thank the jury. And then he starts, and I, I realize this is, this is not right. And he starts to do something, tell them something, and I stand up. He says, sit down, Mr. Hess. Hess. And he tells the jury, thank you very much. Uh, I found that there's not enough evidence to go to this jury, and I'm dismissing the case. After 18 months' trial. Um, and obviously, to say there's not enough evidence to go to a jury when the jury itself is hung is, is a contradiction. But not content with that, he assessed costs against our clients and us of $100,000, and sets an appeal bond of 100000 that that we have to put that up before we can appeal his ruling. So here it is. It's seven years after we filed the suit. It's 18 months after we've gone to trial. And we're being penalized, you know, and our clients are needlessly. I mean, Iberia Hampton had to get off work, <coughs> every, you know, get permission to come to court. And other people had. It was not easy they didn't attend every day, but they when they could. And they'd gone through this, and they'd seen their stories and how the judge had treated uh, them and other witnesses, and even the FBI agent who talked about the gunshots, who we call. <laughs> so it was a pretty down day, uh, to say the least, you know? And I think, what do we do now? And, you know, we kind of remembered what you just recalled about what Fred said, you know, dare to struggle there to win. If you don't struggle, you don't deserve to win. So here we were claiming, uh, we couldn't claim the legacy or carrying out the legacy of Fred Hampton and let this verdict, the, this judge's decision go unchallenged. And we wanted, well, you have to have a transcript to appeal. There was a thir the, tr the trial was a 33,000 pages of transcript. We got a very sympathetic black court reporter to say that he would give us most of the transcript on credit. Uh, and we just set about getting the record. 
Dennis Cunningham, who I talked about earlier, was the founder of PLO. He had been working at Attica. He came back and worked with me and Flint and some other young lawyers at People's Law Office. And we wrote a brief and we described the facts, the conspiracy, the FBI uh, in great detail. And we were very heady and it was sort of the era where uh, nothing left to lose. And we signed the brief, Power to the People. And so we sent it to the Seventh Circuit and not knowing how they were going to deal with it. And a year later, we get called for an argument, oral argument on it. And we get up there. We see we've got a three-judge panel, and two of them are fairly liberal. So we argue with some hope uh, uh, about the case. Uh, Flynn, I think I argued the federal case. Flynn argued the state case or the evidence and, and, and so forth and COINTELPRO. And uh, then they got up and defended it. And they got up and defended it with the... One of the U.S. attorneys said, well, even if the FBI did this, they were just carrying out COINTELPRO orders. And so they can't be criminal. They can't be liable if they were just following orders. The Nuremberg trials, I'd like to have a word. The Nuremberg, the good German defense. And uh, Judge Swigert, who was the chief judge and was also on that panel, looked at them and said, you mean if, if uh, the FBI got a gun? and went and gave it to the Chicago police and said, go murder Fred Hampton, that they would be immune. And I think the U.S. attorney didn't want to say yes to that question, so we had to back off that defense. But that's how far they wanted to go. Well, if we set up a program, somebody's carrying out the program, then they're, you know, it was very much the Nuremberg <coughs> situation. And then... Dennis was particularly known for his very strident uh, uh, wording of things. Uh, and so in the, in the brief, we had said, you know, this was a momentous event. Uh, we've hardly known how to call it. And we said, first, the, the murder and the assassination itself were terrible. Then the cover-up by two grand juries the cover-up by the judge, the cover-up by the police investigation, the crime lab. And so we're really asking you not to join in this cover-up of this case and to give us a new trial and enough money to try the case again and to decide that, and it would recognize that they hid the documents. And so when Dennis gets up for rebuttal argument, the conservative judge says to, to, to Dennis, well, are you saying that we're part of this fascist conspiracy too if we don't side for you? <laughs> so that was kind of a tense moment since Jen Dennis liked to call it like it was. And so he sort of diplomatically said, well, we've never known what to call it. We don't know that there is any hyperbole here. And so he sort of uh, carefully said, if the shoe fits, you know, like not like you're part of it, but if you do this, aren't you doing the same things that they did? And uh, Jim Montgomery was, we were all a little nervous about how that was going to go, but uh, about six months later, I'm in Atlanta where I'm from, and Flint calls me and says, we want everything. We got a new trial. We got $100,000 in fees. Our contempts were overturned. 
in the new trial, we can put in evidence that the FBI hid the documents as evidence of guilt. And it was just in a great moment in which they said that lawyers can be uh, strong and, and in, 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 under the circumstances, our actions <laughs> were not contemptible, like acknowledging that, you know, it, it was like you said, a kangaroo show or a shit show, <laughs> another way to put it. More apt, I <laughs> Our dogfight is the way you, we, we used to call it. It's like going to a dogfight every day, you know, and it was so nasty. Except for you're a chihuahua. Anyway. Uh, Except for uh, you're a chihuahua against yeah, a pit anyway. bull in this situation, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, right. There you go. Uh, anyway, we eventually got assigned to a better judge. We settled a case a couple of years later for $1.85 million paid to the families of Fred and Mark and the people who had been shot. And it was jointly paid by the city, the county, and the FBI had claimed, well, we can't be responsible, but they also paid a third of the verdict. So, you know, uh, going through that, we got to know particularly the family of Fred very well, and they kept Fred's memory alive. Uh, you know, and we felt we had proven the truth. We had come up against this. We had we'd gotten some relief. and. I still remember uh, at the end of this, uh, year, after 20 years later, uh, when I wrote a book, the book about 40 years later, when I wrote the book about it and I was visiting Iberia Hampton uh, at her place in Haynesville, and I said, well, what do you think after all this? And she says, they got away with murder. And I had to agree. And so as proud as we are of exposing it, that's also the fact. Um, how 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 does that resonate with you? And what I what I mean by that is, you know, who ultimately ordered this assassination? Who ultimately was orchestrating these type of things? Um, you know, who ultimately can be responsible for putting the drugs in his system? Um, you know, there's numerous things of questions that and and. I mean, justice, truly justice, uh, because, you know, if you ask me, I think those who have the absolute use of force have to be held to an absolute standard. And in this case, it was, you know, it's like that comic book, Who Watches the Watchmen, right? Like, who, who watches the people who are supposed to be watching you? Um, and in this case, it was to the highest levels, and, and no one has, has yet been held responsible or, or really anything, honestly. So, I mean, the money is one thing. That's great. The truth came out of what happened. It's well documented. You did an, an impeccable job. But as you, you know, and Abira Hampton put it, you know, they got away with this. So how does that resonate with you? And and how does that resonate with you past continuing to, to practice law? Well, I think it's, 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 a, it's a mixture of things. And to one extent, Hanrahan never got reelected to anything. He ran again for state's attorney, the first time a Democrat ever got defeated. He ran for mayor. He ran, and we put out a poster wanted for murder, not for mayor. Uh, anyway, it ended his political career. And he was, to that extent, the uh, liberal white community and the black community came together and said no. And I think that coalition eventually became the coalition that event, that, that uh, got Harold Washington elected mayor years later. 
And some people say that's probably why Obama came to Chicago was because it had a liberal mayor when he came there to organize. So that's part of the legacy. Part of the legacy is that without the kind of leadership that Fred Hampton and the Panthers provided, I think the west side of Chicago was inundated with dope. The gangs took more power. Uh, you know, uh, things deteriorated. There was not a force representing the community the way the Panthers had. So that's a tremendous toll. Uh, no law enforcement ever did a day in jail. Uh, the police who were charged only with obstructing truck, uh, justice went in front of a friendly Democratic judge who dismissed their case uh, before before he even got to it. But he, it wasn't, they had asked for a bench trial. So I think it's a mixture about the, about the justice system. I think we use the courts to expose what happened. As you said, people would think this could never have happened, but it did. And actually, the because of both Watergate and COINTELPRO, actually in the late 70s under Gerald Ford, the legislatures passed some restrictions on the FBI and the CIA that uh, two of, two of uh, Gerald Ford's uh, people, uh, Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney, said he should veto it, and he did, but Congress over overcame that. So there were restrictions put on what the CIA and the FBI could do, at least for that period of time. When it became public, the COINTELPRO program formally ended. That doesn't mean that they didn't do other th the same things by different names. Um, so I think it's certainly a mixed legacy uh, in terms of that. Um, and the pain in Mrs. Hampton's heart and life never went away, uh, you know, it was, and certainly that's true of her father and her brother, his brother and sister, and uh, so I think it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, at best, you know, it's a mixed legacy. I mean, I don't, we can't be too proud because they got away with murder. We are glad that we could do what we did and expose at least what happened in the truth. Well, I'll challenge uh, you a little bit because I think, I think you can be proud. Because you stood in the face of a tidal wave, and you you stood your own, and that if you're standing in the way of a tidal wave and you don't drown, that's a huge win, because that's an overwhelming force that you just came up against, and you you know, I I, I try to bring this up on the show as much as I can, which is the status quo is a hell of a thing to try to buck, and you you tried, and it was a huge victory, and I think the biggest thing that we need to, as a civilization, as a species, however you want to put it, that we need to do is we need to study history. And in this case, it is an incredible example of multiple things. And I'll start with the negative things in society first, then I'll end with the happy one, which, you know, the negative things is, you know, Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney, they got another shot at things that, that shouldn't have happened. And not only did they get another shot at things, they did the Patriot Act, which I brought up already, but they also, you know, were instrumental in the prison program that you know, uh, Edward Snowden revealed, which in many ways is almost the same program of COINTELPRO, but instead it's brought into the digital realm. And now instead of having to you know, do a little bit harder of uh, getting at people, you now can just like monitor them and find dirt on them. I mean, if, if the FBI back then had the uh, technology, technological ability that is at the disposal today, I would be terrified at what would have been able to happen. And we may have never understood the truth to the depth that you do. So I think that's one thing in, you know, studying this that is, is great is 
you gave it a great example. You, you got every, the truth out and now it's something that we should be able to learn from going forward. And the other thing is, well, the legacy of Fred Hampton is I've always thought about it. So I have a good friend of mine, Charlie, he brings up Fred Hampton to me all the time. I adore him a lot for it. Um, and one of the things he always talks to me about to me is his unity across different classes and looking at things not from the color of skins because that is i mean chicago is an amazing example of how racism was used in order to maintain the status quo it was intentional to divide the city into different neighborhoods in order to stoke division so that the same people can be coming in and going through um now it didn't didn't start out that way obviously people want to grow you know live where they are in their community that they understand but they definitely took advantage of it but somebody like Fred Hampton coming in and saying, hey, it's not race. It's, you know, the the people who are controlling the status quo and look at the mean. And now in the legacy of Fred Hampton is, is look at the means that they're willing to go to if they're feeling threatened. Well, like Fred said, you don't fight. We don't fight racism with racism. You know, I like that. We fight racism with solidarity and. In that movie, you see many examples of him going and speaking to the young patriots, and it's quite an anomaly because they're wearing hats with the Confederate flag at first, you know, as though that's where they came from, from Kentucky and Tennessee, and I, because I grew up in Georgia, and certainly they partly understood what that legacy meant, but I think as they learned out more about it, the, the, the Confederate flags disappeared from their caps because, you know, that was obviously a uh, fight, you know, a, a symbol of the right to hold other people in chattel slavery, which is the opposite of what Fred Hampton was talking about. Yeah. Do you, are you familiar with Daryl um, Davis at all? I think his name is Daryl Davis. I don't know who is. I don't know if I he's know. a musician, I think, is his day job. But what he's famous for or infamous for, however you want to put it. Um, is it he's gotten I think like over a thousand KKK members to give up being KKK members. Uh, oh, he's yeah. African American and he just literally talks to people and bridges the divide of rhetoric and mind mm -hmm. viruses. Um, and I think what's so enthralling about Fred Hampton is that he was able to do it not needing to sit in somebody's you know kitchen with a cup of coffee. But able to do it in mass scale, which, you know, if I was to put on the hat of J. Edgar Hoover for a second, maybe I can understand. He definitely seemed almost like a messiah in his ability to do that. Um, it's it's a shame, but it's. I mean, a lot of things happen that are a shame, and what we have to do out of that is try to find the good, right? And I think he gave such an amazing example of a template of how we can, especially, I mean, nowadays, I mean, we have so many things that are going on and our conflating factors of issues are only going to get larger. Um, he gives a really great template for how we as a collective community can come together. I mean, you, you mentioned the breakfast program, but I'll, I'll mention it in the intro message, which at this point, people have already heard it. Um, but, you know, the program of, you know, if you can't get breakfast or you, you have to go to work, you could drive your kids off at this program and they'll get fed, they'll um, get attended to, cared for in such a, it's such a loving manner, um, and really bringing people together in a community mm -hmm. and building a community. And I can't remember exactly the quote of Fred, but something along the lines of, you know, if we build a community and we show this community effort, they're going to listen to our words of class struggle. 
and all of that much more deeply than just standing up on a pulpit. I think he said something like, these, these mothers who bring their kids to the breakfast program, they may not know what socialism is, but they sure love the breakfast for children program. Right. And, <laughs> uh, and I, I think another thing to comment, I mean, you, met, you commented on this, is the fact that they got away with murder. Uh, you know, just like Nixon got away and he was immediately pardoned, and then the people who did the Iraq War and carried out torture were immediately, were never brought to justice. And now we see the potential for the people who did January 6th, uh, not only getting away with it, but trying to re trying to do it again. And that's really pretty scary and right up front. So sometimes we wonder where, you know, it seems like the, the fascism that Fred talked about in the 60s seemed very abstract compared to today when it doesn't seem so far away. And Fred talked about fighting fascism, you know, and at that point, we didn't really, you know, and today that message is a lot clearer than it was then, I think. Yeah, I can see that. It's, um, well, what's interesting though, and, and what was, the, what I was thinking of at a few moments when you were kind of giving us the timeline is, um, how much we've advanced as a, as a culture in so many ways and how many ways we haven't. And one of the ways I think we have is that saying things like COINTELPRO or black, you know, uh, black, uh, revolutionaries. Black yeah. Or black revolutionaries getting murdered by police and things like that seem, you know, back then I'm sure it was shocking. Um, but now when something happens and you have a video camera and you see it, it could start a big movement and people are starting to think about these things since, you know, George Floyd quite deeply, but even yes. still, if you were to go to 2000 to, you know, to 2015, maybe, maybe that's a good year to choose when social media wasn't quite infecting us as much. Um, you know, these type of things that were happening or shootouts with police, you know, between a political action party and a police and a police station and, you know, having a pretty open war with them who are the same people who you're labeling a gang who are giving kids free lunches like that seems so far off into the past but it really wasn't but we've just advanced that much but i think the truth lies in paradox and the paradox of that is while at the same time we still have police brutality to such a grotesque level we have corruption in that to such a grotesque level um and maybe because things are taboo more now and and seemed as is shocking maybe that's why we're seeing some of these more overt things of uh fascism and rhetoric that is shocking um because it's it's the last dying breath of the former status quo it's a backlash yeah. it's a backlash to the gains of the civil rights movement and acknowledgement of slavery and on the one hand you have these tremendous understandings now of the critical role that slavery paid you know these things discoveries about how all the ivy league schools were uh the money for them for the law schools for the uh, medical schools were from the backs of black people if not the bodies of black people who were dissected there and uh you know all these things that we didn't know that underlie our society at the same time those things are being exposed people are just blatantly coming out against voters' rights, the right of all, you know, people to vote. 
And that's really a contradiction, like you said. Yeah. It's, it, it still gives me a lot of faith, though. And the only, the only concern I have with the future is that we don't listen to an example like Fred Hampton and we don't dis- divide ourselves further. And instead, we try to embrace yeah. and go across the line because, you know, okay, I'll give you an example here. And this may seem like outrageous. Uh, there's a statistic recently that like 35 or 40% of people who make um, $250,000 or uh, around $250,000 a year are now living paycheck to paycheck, which is like, oh, wow, $250,000. You must be doing really well for yourself. Uh, well, the majority of those people that are in that statistic are people who have many, many kids, right? They're like large families or two, two to four kids or something like that, right? So, okay, well, $250,000 kids, you know, you're still doing pretty well for yourself, but that person who's making that much money has more in common with people who are living regular jobs than the the top end of the spectrum who's really driving our political discourse. And until we realize that, that if someone is affected that is making minimum wage is, is getting worse off, it's going to affect the people who are in that range of 250 K down far more than the people who are, you know, calling the shots um, and driving the rhetoric, which I think is what, at least myself is what I take from from Fred and what I try to think and soak into my thoughts on today's pl- politics is we have far more in common and we need to, to realize that instead of being shocked by um, the div- divisive rhetoric, honestly, it seems like it's only getting worse. Yeah, well, it's certainly the 1% has the real power. Not, the, I think that's pretty clear. Or even the one percent of the one percent, almost yeah. in terms of wealth, power, control, and I don't know why we can't tax them to help. <laughs> but you know, that seems like such an obvious, easy solution. Yeah. Well, I really appreciated talking with you. Thank you very much. Um, is there anything else that you want to add before we we wrap? Um, no, I don't. I I don't. I don't think so. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, I think, like you said, the legacy of Fred lives, and so that's something we have helped continue. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, I'm gonna hit pause, but thank you very much again, and I appreciate your time. Likewise. <laughs>